We're going to be learning Hamedrish Vahamasa from Rabbi Cheskel Lipschitz on Parshas Noah. The first piece of Drush has to do with vegetarianism. The Torah says that Noah is allowed to eat meat like the produce of the land. So the Gemara explains that Adam HaRishon and the subsequent generations were not allowed to eat the meat of animals. They were only allowed to eat produce that grew on the earth until Noah came around and then they were permitted to eat meat. So we have to understand this shift. Now, another question. There's a medrash in Nitzavim, so we're at the end of the Torah. The Torah says, Atem Nitzavim Hayom, that the Jews are standing there. So the medrash quotes a pasuk from Mishlei, Hafoch Rishayim Ve'enam. If you turn over Rishayim, there's nothing there. So the medrash explains that when HaKadosh Baruch Hu looks at the deeds of the wicked and he turns them over, they can't survive. He turned over the deeds of the people in the Mabul's time and they couldn't survive. And it goes through Sodom and Mitzrayim. So all of these wicked people were destroyed, but Atem Nitzavim Hayom. It contrasts that, that the Jews are standing there today. They have survived. So the question is, what does it mean that Hashem turns over is Hofeich, the deeds of the wicked? And another question. There's another medrash also in Nitzavim that Kishibo Yisrael Lifrok Olbi Meyechezkel. There's a story in Yechezkel chapter 20 that the people come to ask Hashem something. So the medrash interprets this that they were trying to abandon the Torah. So their argument was that if a Kohen owns a slave, that slave is allowed to eat truma because his owner is a Kohen. But if the Kohen then sells that slave to Yisrael, he loses the right to eat truma. So the people in the times of Yechezkel say the same thing, that since they have been abandoned, quote unquote, sold by Hashem to the non-Jews, so they no longer have to follow the rules of the Torah. Now they're free to do like all the nations of the world. So they're free to go worship idolatry. So their argument is that they're no longer slaves of Hashem because they've been exiled and they've been given over to the other nations. So now they're allowed to follow their new owner's ways of doing idolatry. So the answer Hashem gives them is that I swear that I will rule over you. So Hashem dismisses this argument and he says that even though the Jews are exiled, they still belong to him. And the Medrash explains the reason is because you made a vow to be my people. Because in Parshas Nitzavim, it says, There is a vow that the Jews are going to follow the Torah. So Hashem's response is, even if the Jews think that they're sold to other nations, they no longer belong to Hashem, but they have this vow that binds them to Hashem and to follow the rules of the Torah. So there's a few questions on this medrash. How does the medrash know that this was the conversation that these people had? It doesn't say this whole discussion in the Navi. And what exactly is the metaphor? Even if the Kohen sells his slave, he only loses the ability to eat truma, but he's not allowed to go worship idolatry. So 
where did they get from this metaphor that they're allowed to worship idolatry? And what is Hashem's answer that they have a vow? All the nations of the world are commanded not to worship idolatry. So what exactly is the argument that the Jews are bound by this vow? So he points out that the Sefer Akedas Yitzchak has an approach to explaining this medrash, but he's going to explain it in a different way. So he explains it based on a Gemara in Chulin Sari Aleph Amad Beis. Rabbi Akiva says that he asked Rabban Gamliel and Rabbi Yoshua in the Itlis of Am'um. So they went shopping in the marketplace of Am'um. Shaholchu likach behema lemishte beno shal Rabban Gamliel. They were shopping for meat for the wedding of Rabban Gamliel's son. So they were doing the wedding shopping for like the caterer. So Rabbi Akiva asked them that it says in the Torah after Yaakov fights with the angel, by Yizrach lo Hashemesh, that the sun rose for him. So he asked, did the sun only rise for Yaakov? The sun rises for the whole world. So the Gemara explains that Rabbi Yitzchak said that the sun rose early in the merit of Yaakov. So the question on this whole discussion is why does the Gemara have to give us this whole background story that Rabbi Akiva asked this question in the marketplace when Rabban Gamliel and Rabbi Yoshua were shopping for meat? What's the point of that whole introduction to the basic question on the Pasuk? It could have skipped the whole background story of when this happened and where they were and what they were doing and just gone straight to the question on the Pasuk. So Tosos and Krisos Yodalid gives somewhat of an answer to this. And he says, The Gemara is trying to show us the intensity of the Torah learning of these great rabbis that even though they're planning a wedding and they're shopping for the wedding, even so their whole conversation is surrounding Torah topics. So we see that this was all they discussed was Torah, no matter how busy or how intense things might have been. But this is not the most satisfying explanation. So the Hamedrash Vahamasa explains this in a different direction. He says that in his times, there's a new movement of animal rights. People who believe that humans and animals are both living creatures. So why should humans have the right to eat animals? We should treat animals with the same respect that we treat people. So he says that this movement goes in two directions. Some people say that because animals and people are equal, so just like we treat animals without rights, so we can also treat people with without rights. But the much more common form of this idea is that since people have rights, so animals should also have rights. So that leads to vegetarianism. So the Hamedrash Vahamasa does not think that this is entirely wrong. In fact, he thinks that this is largely correct, that people have no right to eat an animal with one exception. The people who are elevated above animals, so they have the right to eat and enjoy and benefit from animals. But the people who live their lives in such a way that there's really no difference between them and animals, so then in fact this view is correct that they should not be using or eating animals. And in fact the Gemara itself has a line that Am Ha'aretz Asr Lechol Basar. Someone who doesn't study Torah is prohibited to eat meat. So it doesn't mean on a practical level, but on an ideological level, someone who 
who doesn't live a life of Torah doesn't deserve to eat meat. Only someone who elevates and sanctifies their life through Torah earns the right to eat an animal. Now, how do we know what's the test for who has elevated themselves versus who has not? So the Hamedrash Vahamasa suggests that one way of determining this is based on Hashkacha Pratis. If Hashem changes the world for this person's needs, so then we see that this person is elevated above nature. But if Hashem is unwilling to change the laws of nature for this person, so then it shows that they're part of nature, they're not more elevated than it, and they should not be eating animals. So this is how he explains the context of Rabbi Akiva's question when Rabbi Gamliel and Rabbi Yoshua were shopping for meat. Because they were shopping for meat, that was the context of this whole discussion. They began to discuss the issue of vegetarianism. Why are we allowed to eat and serve meat at the wedding? Maybe we don't deserve to. So regarding that issue of whether they're deserving to eat meat, Rabbi Akiva brought up the question of what does it mean when it says, Vatizrach lo Hashemesh, that the sun rose for Yaakov. Didn't the sun rise for the whole world? So the answer to that is that the sun rose early for Yaakov. The point being that Yaakov was on the level where nature was subordinate to him. Hashem was willing to change the laws of nature for Yaakov. So that shows that he's above nature. And so too, he has the right to eat animals. Now, the same is true of Noah. We find in a few Midrashim that Hashem changed nature. For example, he had the lions surround the teva to protect Noah. So there were all sorts of changes or suspensions to the laws of nature in order to accommodate Noah. So that's why Noah was also allowed to eat meat because he was a person who elevated himself above nature. As opposed to Adam, who was part of nature, we don't find nature being changed for Adam, so he was prohibited to eat meat and everyone was prohibited to eat meat until Noah came around. Now, the Hamedrash Vahamasa returns to a point that he made in last week's previous drush, which is that the point of the Sheva Mitzvahs B'nai Noach is different from the Torah. The seven mitzvahs for the whole world, their purpose is to create functioning, strong societies. So the seven mitzvahs are intended to teach people how to live with each other. And even the prohibition against idolatry is also intended for that purpose. It's not really about God, it's about the people. If they live in an idolatrous society, so then instead of following the moral rules of the Torah, they'll have all sorts of immoral practices. That's why there are certain leniencies for non-Jews, like they're allowed to believe in shituf, that God has some partners that run the world with him. So that's not prohibited for a non-Jew, even though it is prohibited for a Jew. And the reason is because the purpose of idolatry for non-Jews is not about serving God. It's about creating a strong society. And that's good enough, even if they believe in shituf, so long as they also recognize the one true God. Now, the purpose of the Torah, though, is very different. It's to elevate a person above the standards of regular society. So the purpose is not just for 
for people to be able to live together, but it's to elevate them and to bring them closer to God. So the Torah is what provides this quality that someone is now elevated above nature. The Sheva Mitzvot B'nai Noach are important and people who follow them are moral, but they're still on the level of the rest of nature. The whole purpose is for them to be able to live together in society. As opposed to the Torah, which takes a person a notch above society, above the rest of nature and the rest of mankind, and makes them into an elevated, more sanctified person. And Ahmedrash Vamasa says that this is a very difficult process. It's very difficult to live a life of Torah and to elevate oneself. It's much easier to just live a practical life in a healthy, functioning society. So that's how he explains the conversation in the Medrash between the Jews and Yechezkel. It's not that they're coming to Yechezkel and saying, we don't want to follow any rules. We're going to actually serve idolatry. Because as he pointed out, no one in the world is allowed to do that. So it wouldn't make any sense for them to come to Yechezkel and say to him, we have no interest in serving God. We're going to actually worship idolatry. And there's also no mention of that in the Psukim. So the way he explains what they're trying to say is that they don't want to live the special, unique, elevated status of Jews who live a life of Torah. They just want to live a regular life in a normal society. So they're not bad people. They're not saying that they're going to do idolatry. They're willing to follow the Sheva Mitzvos B'nai Noach, but their argument is that now that the Beis HaMikdash was destroyed and they're in exile, so they lost the special quality of being Jews on a more elevated level, and now they just want to live in a normal society like all the non-Jews. So that's the argument that they're presenting Yechezkel. When they say that they're going to worship sticks and stones, it doesn't mean actual idolatry. It just means that they're going to work like everybody else. They're going to live a more mundane existence, but they're still going to be good people. They're going to live by the moral laws. They're going to contribute to society. They're going to treat others well, and they're going to worship Hashem in a distant way. But what they're saying is that they no longer want to have the detailed rules of the Torah to make them elevated, sanctified people. So on that, Yechezkel tells them that they don't have a choice anymore because the Jews already made a vow to live on that elevated status. So the Jews don't have the choice to just live a mundane, ethical existence as part of a regular society. And this reflects the difference between an Eved, a slave of Hashem, versus a child, a Ben of Hashem. The Jews are the children of Hashem, and a child is a biological bond. It can't be changed. Even if a parent wants to disown their child, they can't do so because the child is always their child. That's the facts of nature, as opposed to a slave who could be sold to someone else. So the rest of the world has the relationship of a slave to Hashem, and that's why it could come and go. But the Jews have the relationship of a child to Hashem, and that can never be changed. Even if they sin, even if they want out of it, they still remain a child. And so they have to still live a life of Torah, even if they want to opt out, because there's no way to disown or change who your child is. And that's how the Medrash Ramasa explains the Medrash that he began with, that it says that Hashem turns over the deeds of the wicked. And he found that the Dor HaMabul and the people of Sodom and Egypt didn't deserve to continue 
continue, whereas the Jews are standing here today. So the question was, what does that mean that he turned over their deeds? So he explains that the image is that when Hashem evaluates these people whose job was to create a functioning society, when he looks through their deeds and he sees that they didn't do so, so he goes back to the original intention, what was their job to begin with? And since they didn't do so, so there's no reason for them to live. There's no point to have a society like the Dor or Sodom or Mitzrayim when they're sinning and it's an unethical society. So what's the point of leaving such a society around? But the difference is the Jewish people who are the sons of Hashem, even if they sin and they lose their way for a generation or for a moment, even so they deserve to live because they're the children of Hashem and they have this lofty mission to elevate themselves above nature, not just to create a functioning society, but to elevate and sanctify themselves and that job continues even if they fail for a moment or two. So that's his drusha. That's how he sees this whole issue. Here he touches on the distinction between someone that's part of nature versus someone that lives a life of Torah and is elevated above nature. And he connects that to the special mission that the Jewish people have in the world. Now on Parshas Noach, there's two drushim. So the second one has to do with a medrash. It's talking about the two animals from each species that came to the teva. So the medrash tells a very strange story. Asa Shikra, lying, the concept of lying, of Sheker, came and it wanted to go on to the Teva. So Noah said, you can't come on unless you have a spouse with you. So you have to go find a partner and then you can come on. So lying went and it found Pachsa, Pachad, fear. So Sheker wanted Pachad to be its partner to go on to the Teva. So Pachad asked Sheker, what are you going to give me in return for being your spouse? So Sheker said, whatever I gain, I'll pass over to you. You'll get anything that I gain. So they go on to the Teva, and that's how it was. Anything that Sheker would gain, it would pass along to Pachad. But then one day, Sheker decided to ask Pachad, can I have something? And Pachad said to him, no, that was our agreement that anything you get, I'm going to get. So I'm not willing to give you anything. So this is the very strange story that's in the Medrash. Now, obviously, this isn't to be taken literally. There's some lesson. So the Medrash Vahamasa explains this based on another well-known Medrash. The Medrash records that when Hashem wanted to create the world, there was a fierce debate between the various groups of angels whether to do so. So the angels that represent Chesed said to create the world so that people can do Chesed, whereas the angels who represent truth said not to create the world world because people lie. The angels who represent Sedek, justice, said to create the world so there can be justice. And the angels of Shalom, of peace, advised against creating the world because there's so much fighting. So that's the reference in the Pasuk, Chesed ve'emes nifgashu, Tzedek v'shalom nashaku. That there was a meeting between Chesed and Emes and Tzedek and Shalom. It's referring to this debate. 
So the Medrash concludes that what did Hashem do? He threw the angels of Emes to the ground. As the Pasuk says, Vatishlach Emes Artsa, that Hashem threw Emes to the ground. So now the angels complain to Hashem, why are you denigrating us? We want Emes brought back up. So that's what it says in the Torah, Emes me eretz titzmach v'tzedek mishamayim nishkaf, that the truth comes up from the land. It's a reference to the truth which Hashem threw down on the land coming back up to heaven. So again, this is also a very strange medrash and it obviously has a deeper meaning. So what does it mean that there was a debate between chesed and emes and tzedek and shalom? And in the pasuk, it's described differently. One is nifgashu, that they met up, and the other one is nashku, that they kissed, which seems like they were more in agreement. Also, it says that emes was thrown to the ground, whereas shalom was not thrown to the ground. Why was emes thrown to the ground if it raised a reasonable objection? So what was it being punished for? And why was tzedek watching emes from the ground rise up? And also the Navi in Daniel, which talks about emes being thrown to the ground, seems to imply that it was a good thing. So why did the angels complain about that if it was a good thing? So basically, there's a lot of details of this medrash which require explanation. So the medrash v'amasa suggests that shalom is a more important trait than emes. Even though, of course, peace and truth are both incredibly important, but peace at the end of the day is a foundation of the world in a way that truth is not. Truth is incredibly important, but it's possible to exist in some ways without truth, but it's not possible to exist without peace. Now, this leads to a very important insight because the Medrash Vamasa asks, in the Medrash it says that Emes claims that the world is all lies and Shalom says that the world is all fighting. Now, that seems like an exaggeration. The world is not all lies. There might be many lies, but there's also a lot of truth. And the world is not all fighting. There's many cases of peace. So why are Emes and Shalom saying in exaggeration that the world has nothing redeeming in terms of truth and peace, which is not true? It seems ironic for truth to say something which is not exactly true. So the Medrash Ramasa explains that really Shalom and Emes are not saying two different claims. They're both the same claim. We have to understand both of what they're saying together. Because since every person is so different and sees the world differently from everybody else, so on a natural level, people are not going to agree with each other and there could never be perfect harmony, perfect shalom if people are being true to themselves. Because no two people are exactly the same. Everyone has their own unique perspective. So if we want to have MS or Shalom, one of them has to give something because the two of them cannot totally coexist perfectly together. If there's full absolute MS, then there cannot be full Shalom because it means that people see things differently. And if there's full Shalom, it means that people are giving up some part of their MS. So there can never be perfect MS and Shalom together. And that's the claim that MS and Shalom are making. They're not saying that there's never MS or there's never Shalom. They're saying 
meaning that independently there could be MS or Shalom, but they could never fully exist together in the world that we have. And that's why they oppose creation. So how do we solve this problem in the world that we live in? So the answer is that we practice a new form of truth. It's like a social truth. It's not a pure form of truth where we do exactly what we think we should be doing, but it's a way of cooperating with other people. So there's a partial element of truth. We try to be true to ourselves as much as we can, but we also cooperate and get along with people even though we disagree with them. So we're able to greet someone or talk to someone even if we disagree with them because we live through this conciliatory type of truth as opposed to pure truth. And it makes sense because what's the point of everybody saying exactly what they think and creating terrible fights and machlokas everywhere they go? It makes much more sense for people to give in a little of their pure truth and to be more flexible and to allow for social relationships, even if it means sacrificing somewhat the pure truth. So that's the form of earthly truth that we have. It's different than the pure truth, but it's a way of allowing there to be peace and harmony in the world that people are flexible with some of their truths in order to get along with others. And we even find in the halacha that this is acceptable. So the Shulchan Aruch quotes a halacha that you're allowed to invite someone to come eat at your house even if you know that they're not going to accept. So you're giving a false invitation because you know that it's not going to be accepted, but you're allowed to do so because that is the custom and it's a way of contributing to society even if it's untruthful. Likewise, there's the case in the Gemara in Ksubis where you're allowed to praise the beauty of the bride even if she's not beautiful. And again, this is a way of getting along with other people and preventing fighting even if it's sacrifice sacrifices some of the truth. So there's two types of truth. There's the pure concept of truth that exists in heaven. And then there's the new modified version of truth, which exists on earth, which is itself important. It's not wrong to practice that form of social truth. It's just necessary in the world. So this whole framework beautifully explains the Medrash. Emes and Shalom opposed the creation of the world because they said it's impossible to have MS and Shalom. It doesn't mean that each on its own can never exist in the world, but it means that together there is no way to have a harmonious society if everyone lives by pure truth. So that's why they opposed creation. So the answer that Hashem gave them is that he threw MS down to the earth. It doesn't mean that he denigrated MS or he canceled it. The opposite. He was creating a new form of MS, which is the social MS that exists on earth. So that's the meaning of MS on earth, that now that allowed for the creation of society, having a more flexible form of MS, a social type of truth. So that's why the Navi talks about MS thriving on earth, because in fact, it did thrive on earth. It allowed for the creation of societies. And this type of earthly MS changes depending on the society and the time and the location. 
location, different civilizations and societies have different norms and customs for communicating with each other. So the form of earthly MS is going to adapt and change depending on each society that it's used in. So that's very different than the truth of Hashem, which does not change depending on the time and location. It's a pure form of truth as opposed to the MS on earth, which does change. So that's what it means that it was very successful on earth and it took root and it thrived. So at the end of the whole process, when there was a clash between MS and Shalom, so Shalom won out. Shalom is the more dominant trait that we have in the world, as opposed to MS, which we don't really have on this earth. It only exists in its pure form in heaven, whereas Shalom, we do have examples of in this world. So Shalom is the more dominant trait, and that's why in the Psukim, Chesed and MS are still in conflict, because there is no pure MS on this earth, as opposed to Tzedek and Shalom, which exist harmoniously together, because Shalom does have a place in this earth. So this is a very interesting analysis, but basically MS was the one concept that had to be compromised in order to allow for the creation of the world. Now, the Hamedrash Masa continues this description of human society, and he says that it was worth sacrificing MS in order to allow for Shalom. So Shalom is the end goal, and so long as we have that in society, then it's worth changing and adapting MS from its pure form into this earthly form. But that is only limited to MS. The Medrash says that when it comes to tzedek, justice, so that we cannot adapt in order to preserve shalom. And this makes a lot of sense because if we start compromising on tzedek and allowing people to have their own form of justice in order to preserve the overall shalom, that's going to lead to a deeply immoral society because then people will be creating justice in any way that they want in order to protect what they consider peace, but ultimately that will lead to a totally degraded, disgusting society where nobody's able to function at all. So tzedek cannot be compromised at all, even for shalom. So this is the framework that the Medrash is creating. MS is the only concept that we're able to compromise on for the greater good of shalom. So in the clash between pure shalom and pure MS, pure shalom wins out, but we cannot compromise on tzedek because that would totally destroy society. MS could be more flexible and still have a functioning proper moral society. So that's why when the Torah says MS may eretz titzmach, that the truth is coming back up to heaven from the land, it says v'tzedek mishamayim nishkaf, that tzedek is watching from heaven. Because tzedek is not something that can ever be compromised in an earthly form. There's no such thing as earthly tzedek as opposed to the pure form of tzedek in shamayim. Tzedek has to always be the pure form even when it's a 
applied in earthly societies. So this is a very brilliant description of how a society has to work and what we're able to compromise on in order to get along with other people and what's inviolate, what can never be compromised on. So now he comes back to the medrash that he began with about Sheker trying to get onto the Mabel. And he says that there's a big question about the whole story of the Mabel. Why is it that the world was destroyed in the times of the Mabul? And nowadays we've had so many sinful generations and the world is not destroyed. So what was unique about the time of the Mabul that Hashem destroyed the whole world? So he says that the difference is that in the times of the Mabul, the entire world was sinful. There was no redeeming society. As opposed to other generations, even though there were terribly sinful societies like Sodom or the Nazis, there were terrible societies, but the whole world was not corrupted. So that's the difference. That's why the Gemara says that Hashem will never bring a mabul on the whole world, but he will bring on one nation. So again, the point is that what changed at the time of the mabul is that the whole world was sinful as opposed to later generations where it was not the whole world, even if it was a full society, a full nation. But Damerj Ramasa now asks that even this theory doesn't work because the next story in the Torah is the Dor HaFlaga, when the whole world tried to rebel against Hashem. So here we have another generation where it wasn't just one or two societies. It was the whole world sinning and still they were not all destroyed. So he says that the difference between the Dor HaMabul and the Dor HaFlaga is that at the time of the Mabul, people sinned Hishchis Kol Basar. The sins were very physically based. People were not interested in any ideas or ideology or belief. They were just purely pursuing their based desires. So everybody was just doing whatever they wanted. There was no sense of trying to do something transcendent. As opposed to the Dor HaFlaga, even though they sinned, but at least their sin was philosophically motivated. They were not just doing whatever their base desires were, but they at least reflected an ideology, even though it was a false ideology. So their mistake was in terms of Sheker, as opposed to following their desires. So that's a higher level of sin, and that's why they were not all destroyed. But now that Medrash Vamasa asks, so then what was the point of the Mabul? If the only thing it accomplished is that it removed the physical sinners, but it retained the ideological sinners, so what's the big gain of the Mabul? There's still rampant Sheker in the world. People sin for philosophical reasons, motivated by Sheker. So what is the big accomplishment of the Mabul that the whole world no longer sins for physical reasons if people just sin for ideological reasons motivated by Sheker. So the Medrash Ramasa says that it has to be that just as the Mabul ended the whole world sinning for physical reasons, it also weakened the concept of Sheker. Even though it didn't totally eradicate Sheker, but it did weaken it, so subsequent generations are less prone to Sheker. And this is based on the Gemara, which says that the Navi calls the period before the Mabul as totally rampant.
rampant with Sheker. In other words, the power of Sheker was incredibly powerful before the Mabul, and it was almost impossible to survive. There was nobody that could see things clearly in the way of MS without Sheker because Sheker was so powerful. The Mabul not only ended the physical sinning, but it also weakened Sheker so that even though there's still a lot of Sheker, but there are also people who are able to see through it and follow the MS. So that's how he explains the very strange story in the Medrash about Sheker trying to get into the Teva. The Medrash is focusing on this concept, that even though there's still falsehood in the world after the Mabul, but it's been weakened. And the way it illustrates this concept is with this story, that when Noah was building the Teva, the concept of Sheker wanted to enter. So that's a way of saying that even though the Mabul was going to remove the sinful humanity, but it was not going to solve the problem of Sheker fully. Sheker was going to survive by being, quote unquote, in the Teva. So one of the things that would survive into the world after the Mabul would include Sheker. But Sheker was paired up with fear. So that's a way of weakening the power of Sheker that it no longer has the ability to be limitless and to get the whole world involved in Sheker because anything that Sheker gains goes to Pachad. Pachad in this imagery is a positive force that limits Sheker. So now Sheker does not enjoy its gains. Instead, it all goes to Pachad and Pachad introduces into the system a way of controlling the influence of Sheker. So that's the point of the story that Sheker does not have limitless power once it comes out of the Teva, but it now has to pass everything that it gets along to Pachad. And when it asked Pachad to be able to keep some of its gains, Pachad said that was not our deal, meaning the only way that Sheker can exist in the post-Mabul world is if it's limited by this force of Pachad. So that was the benefit of the Mabul. Not only did it rid the world of a case where everybody is sinning physically following their desires, but it also weakened the overall concept of Sheker and allowed much more room for truth. So that is the second drasha. In this one, he focuses on the benefits of the Mabul and what the role of Sheker in the post-Mabul world is. And he has some very important insights as to how we balance Emes and Chesed and Sedek and Shalom in society. Now, the halachic portion of this parsha has to do with whether a non-Jew is commanded in the mitzvah of Kiddush Hashem. So when it comes to a Jew, if they're forced to violate the three cardinal sins of idolatry, adultery, or murder, so the Jew has to give their life rather than commit those sins. But what about if a non-Jew is being forced to commit a prohibition? Do they have to give their life or not? So he begins with a medrash, the Torah says, You're not allowed to commit suicide. So the Medrash quotes two famous examples of suicide. One is 
is Shaul HaMelech, when he was in war and he realized that he was going to be captured and killed. So he chose to kill himself instead of be captured. And the second is Hanani, Mishal, Vazaria, when they were told to bow to an idolatry, they refused even though they were thrown in a fiery furnace. They survived, but they were intending to kill themselves. So the Medrash says perhaps those cases are prohibited. So it says that the Torah says Ach, which limits this prohibition. So Shaul and Hanani were allowed to do what they did. Now, there is a debate amongst the commentators whether there's a specific leniency for Shaul and Hanani Mishal Vazaria, those specific people, but regular people are not allowed to emulate them, or does that leniency apply to anyone? So let's say someone's in war and they see they're going to be captured. Are they allowed to kill themselves or not? So the Ramban says that the leniency only applied to Shaul because he he had been told by Shmuel Hanavi that he would be killed in battle. So he anyways knew that he was going to die. So that's why he was allowed to kill himself. But it would not apply to other people who don't have the prophecy. And other commentators disagree. They think that this is a leniency that would apply more broadly. Now, similarly, when it comes to Hanani, Mishal, Vazaria, they were not told to bow to an actual idolatry. It was more a sign of respect for the king, but they considered this somewhat idolatrous. So the question is, is someone allowed to choose voluntarily to give their life, even if it's not an actual idolatry that they're being forced to bow to? So there's a debate between Tosvos and the Nemuke Yosef over this. Tosvos says that anyone could choose to follow in the path of Hanani, Mishal, Vazaria and give their life. Whereas the Nemuke Yosef disagrees and he says that regular people should not do this, only well-known tzaddikim where their sacrifice is going to make an influence on the whole community so they're allowed to voluntarily give their lives but not a regular person. So there's some debate as to how far these leniencies extend. Now, the Medrash Vamasa points out that this Pasuk is talking not to Jews but it's written before there were any Jews. So it's talking even to non-Jews. So now this raises the question that the Minchas Chinuch raises, is a non-Jew also allowed to give their life voluntarily rather than commit a sin? According to Tosvos, any Jew is allowed to voluntarily give their life not to commit a sin. So would the same apply to a non-Jew as well? Now, this leads to the much more fundamental issue. Forget about a voluntary case. What if a non-Jew is being forced to commit idolatry? They are also prohibited to do idolatry. So are they commanded to give their life the same way a Jew is or not? So this is a debate between Tosvos and the Rambam versus Rashi. According to Tosvos and the Rambam, the mitzvah of Kiddush Hashem does not apply to a Ben Noach. It only applies to Jews, not to non-Jews. Whereas according to Rashi, there is a mitzvah of Kiddush Hashem and a non-Jew should give their life rather than commit idolatry. Now, this has to do with how you read a Gemara. The Gemara itself raises this question, whether a non-Jew is obligated in Kiddush Hashem. And it brings a proof from the story where Naaman, who was a non-Jew, tells Elisha Hanavi that he's going to have to bow to the king. So this is a similar case where it was not totally idolatrous, but it was a public display of something idolatrous. So Elisha Hanavi tells him that it's okay. 
Now the question is, what is the conclusion of the Gemara? So Rashi has the version that Elisha told him that he could do so privately, but not publicly. Meaning if he was being forced to do so publicly, then he would have to give his life. So we see that a non-Jew is commanded in the mitzvah of Kiddush Hashem. Whereas Tosvos, and according to the Kesef Mishnah, this is also the Rambam's view, they have a slightly different version of the Gemara where it says, V'im Isa that if a non-Jew is commanded in Kiddush Hashem, then Elisha Hanavi should have told him that he's only allowed to do the bowing privately, not publicly. So the fact that he put no limitations on it tells us that a non-Jew is not obligated in Kiddush Hashem at all. So that's the basic debate according to the Kesef Mishnah. And the Rambam agrees with Tosvos. Now, the editor of the Mishnah Lamelech raises the issue that the Rambam in Sefer HaMitzvos seems to actually have a third version of this Gemara. So unlike the Kesef Mishnah, he does not have Tosvos' version. He has a different version. And the HaMedrash Vahamasa picks up on this and he explains the third version of the Rambam. So the basic conceptual idea is that even if a non-Jew is obligated in Kiddush Hashem, it's different than a Jew. When it comes to a Jew, so the Torah said that in general, life takes precedence over keeping the mitzvahs. So if there is a conflict between pikuach nefesh and a mitzvah, generally pikuach nefesh comes first. With the exception of the three sins of Gili Arayos, Shvichos Dam, and Avodah which are more powerful than pikuach nefesh and one has to give their life. As opposed to a non-Jew, there's no v'chai bahem to begin with. So it's not that the prohibition is more powerful than v'chai bahem. It's that there is no v'chai bahem because that's a mitzvah that's given to the Jews later at the giving of the Torah. But the commandment of Bnei Noach begins before the giving of the Torah. So there is no v'chai bahem to begin with. So that's why they would be obligated to give their lives. So when the Gemara raises the issue of whether a non-Jew is obligated in Kiddush Hashem, the real question is whether they have the Chaybahem or not. So according to the Rambam, that was the proof from the story of Naaman and Elisha. Once we see that Elisha allowed him to do something wrong in order to protect his life, so now we see that Bahem does apply to non-Jews, and since they have no mitzvah of Kiddush Hashem, so they're not obligated to give their life, and they're allowed to violate the prohibition if they're being forced to. So that's how the Rambam reads that Gemara. So unlike Tosfos, who understands that Elisha explicitly told Naaman that he's allowed to do a prohibition in order to live, according to the Rambam, Elisha Hanavi only allowed him to do it privately, not publicly. But the mere fact that he allowed him to do it even privately shows that V'chai Bahem does apply to non-Jews, and therefore there is no mitzvah of Kiddush Hashem. So this point, the Mishnah Lamelech already discusses himself in his Sefer Prashas Drachim. So now according to this, it would come out that according to the view of the Rambam, a non-Jew is not only not obligated to give their life rather than do idolatry, they're not even allowed to because they don't have the whole concept of Kiddush Hashem and since the Chai Bahem applies, so they're not allowed to voluntarily give their life. 
So the precious drachim raises the issue, how was Avraham allowed to be thrown into the fiery furnace rather than do Avodah Zarah? If it would be that V'chai Bahem doesn't apply to non-Jews, then that could explain why Avraham was allowed to voluntarily give his life. But since V'chai Bahem does apply to non-Jews, then why wasn't Avraham required to follow that rule? So this depends on the precious drachim's long discussion whether Avraham had the halakha status of a Jew or not. So if he was a Jew, then of course he would have been allowed to give his life. But if he was a non-Jew, then how was he allowed to do so? So the Hamedrish Vahamasa suggests, and he reads this into a Gemara, that Avraham assumed he was going to be saved by Hashem. So he was not giving his life when he went into the fiery furnace, but he actually knew that Hashem would save him. And that's why he was allowed to make the whole stand and to take that position and get thrown into the furnace.